some of you will have heard of the uh, man Chuck Colson. Uh, Colson was a former special counsel to the United States President Nixon, uh, and he was in that role known as uh, probably uh, President Nixon's chief kind of head kicker. He was, he was the worst guy in perhaps the worst and most corrupt president's uh, office. Uh, and he ultimately ended up going to jail for his role in the Watergate scandal, which uh, you may not be that familiar with, but you will be familiar with the consequences of it in that now every time something vaguely controversial happens, the media just puts the suffix gate on uh, said controversy. So Tasmanian politics at the moment might be in the middle of the David O'Burn gate controversy um, because that's how creative um, journalists are these days. So uh, we, uh, we have this um, big scandal. Chuck Colson's right at the centre of it. He goes to jail, but right before he go, goes to jail, uh, he starts reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and has a complete and radical conversion. It's part of actually what uh, leads to him deciding to plead guilty to uh, the charges that are before him uh, because of his conversion to Christian faith. Now, obviously, people are very sceptical about this uh, because they think it's some sort of uh, way for him to try and lessen his sentence. But nonetheless, the evidence uh, of his life is a life transformed. He uh, gets out of jail and then sets up a ministry we uh, know today and we have connection with in this church, uh, Prison Fellowship, which uh, seeks to rehabilitate and minister to families of and to prisoners to see uh, them trans have, uh, have that same transformative experience of the gospel. Now, uh, apart from that story being amazing, uh, he uh, has some interesting reflections on his time as a special counsel to the president. And one of the things that he says is uh, he reflects on what it was like uh, trying to influence Christians. Uh, obviously, America is a funny kind of place. Uh, and uh, in America, Christians have uh, a, lot, a lot of political power, a political sway. Uh, and he says this uh, of what it was like. This is him as a special counsel, not yet a Christian. His reflections now as a Christian on uh, what it was like to kind of try and buy their favour. He said, when I served President Nixon, one of my jobs was to work with special interest groups. We would invite them to the White House, wine and dine them, take them on cruises aboard the presidential yacht. Few were more easily impressed than the religious leaders, the very people who should have been immune to the world's pomp seemed the most vulnerable to it. Nixon and Colson knew that they could get the religious leaders on side by just currying their favour with some nice experiences with an exposure to power. And Colson reflects on this after his uh, conversion and just cannot understand it. And I think uh, in that reflection, and in, even in uh, Chuck Colson's own life itself, we see something of the, the, the warning uh, and the encouragement that John is giving us in his letter today. Those Christian leaders who were so vulnerable to the pomp and ceremony and power of the world needed 
to be reminded, perhaps before they went into those presidential meetings, of what John talks about in this letter. It's clear advice to us and to them and to any Christian to uh, avoid the lures of the world and stick close to Jesus. We'll have a look at that in a moment. But so far, we've seen that for John, uh, he kind of has these two categories with which he continues to circle around in his letter. Light, that is the truth of God, the, the right understanding of God, and love, the right response to God, God's response to us, and the response we ought to have to our neighbours. And in, in the midst of the, the light and the truth of God and, and the love of God and our love of him and love of neighbour is the very real presence of sin, getting in the way of both truth in the form of wrong teaching and getting in the way of love, hating a brother or sister, these sorts of things, instead of loving them. And so his call to us, and we saw it last week in chapter 1, is to a life uh, lived for God in continual repentance and faith, trusting the work of Jesus on the cross. And so in the opening part of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, but I'll just refresh it for you today, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And John uh, is encouraging us to, to live out this truth that, that Christ has died once and for all for our sins and that he now stands between us and God uh, advocating on our behalf. He has died for our sins and through him we can find forgiveness and by the power of the Spirit uh, the ability to, to live out uh, this new love and light of God. And one of the things we'll see as we go through John's letters is, uh, unlike Paul, who's a bit more of a, 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 a rhetorical wizard who, who makes uh, arguments that kind of go like this, and uh, they're a bit hard to follow sometimes, but he, he, he's making kind of uh, a long string of points. John, he, he kind of is more of a vibe guy. Uh, and so his letters kind of circle around these ideas, which is why we need to hold them there so we can kind of see how he's, he's kind of circling around them. When we think of this idea that uh, John has for the Christian life, uh, I think we have another great example uh, in Christian history uh, who who reflects on his own life and reflects the kind of thing I think that John's talking about in in this letter of of continual repentance and faith. You may may have heard of John Newton, the, the guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace, who was a slave-trading sea captain before he became a minister of the gospel. And he said of his life as a Christian, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was, and it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. I am not what I ought to be. I haven't arrived at the final destination I need to continually work on my life in repentance and faith, allowing God's light to expose the darkness and allowing his spirit to empower me to live a life of love. 
But also, I'm not what I once was. When I look back on my life, I can see that I used to be a lot worse. In his case, I used to train on, the, on human beings. And hopefully, in your case as well, you can sort of look back on your life and go, you know, there are sins that I used to have to sort out that, that I've sorted out. But the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is working in my life. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am, that in this moment, in here, here and now, we understand that God has worked powerfully to transform us. Knowing God transforms us from what we were, makes us aware of what we ought to be, and continually works in us to make us more like Jesus. This is John's vision. And now John contrasts uh, love for God versus love for the world. That's broadly speaking what he's doing in this part of the letter. First, he talks about love, loving God. How do you know if you love God? Well, John gives the answer pretty straightforwardly, doesn't he? Verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus says. How do you know if you know God? The answer is, you do what he says. You, you, you keep his commands. Now, this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because imagine uh, you and I were having a conversation and uh, we, we, we think that in the course of this conversation we might have a, a mutual acquaintance or a mutual friend. And uh, I say to you, oh, I think I know Johnny, who you're talking about. And then uh, as I proceed to describe Johnny... I, I, I describe something like someone totally different to the Johnny you know. And if that happened, you'd probably think, I, I don't think we're talking about the same. I'm not sure you do know Johnny. I don't know who you know, but I don't think it's Johnny. Either that or Johnny's really good at pretending. But for the sake of this analogy, let's just go with, uh, I, I'm telling, I, I'm lying, I'm, I'm describing a different person. And so it is when someone says they know Jesus, if, or they know God. If they say, oh yeah, I, I know Jesus, I know what he's about, and then they proceed to talk about how he's, he's a good guy, he's an inspiration for their life, he's a, a, an interesting kind of character in, in first century history, uh, and he's someone who provides um, inspiration for how they hope to live and achieve all the things that they want to achieve, but uh, they, they reject anything that he might actually say about money or sex or the, his exclusivity. You'd be right to think, hang on, this person doesn't really know God. They don't, they don't, they're not doing what he says. They're not trusting his commands. They're not living as though he is Lord. If someone knows God, then they do what God says. They live, ultimately, John says in verse 6, like Jesus lived. And ultimately, this is how Jesus uh, uh, builds on the Old Testament's commands 
to, to love God by making it about him. He is the true source of life, the true model of light, the true model for love. And John uh, talks about this when he says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. Yet I am writing to you a new command, verse 8. It is truth, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It was always about loving God, but now we see uh, this in its fullness in Christ. How do you know if you love God? You live like Jesus. You do what he says. But the ultimate test, John says, comes down to your love for your brother and sister in Christ. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. They do not know where they are going because darkness has blinded them. The ultimate test. You might be uh, thinking, I'm doing a good job at all these other things. But, you know, you, you hate a brother or sister. The ultimate test for whether or not you know God is whether or not you love your fellow Christian. Now, this doesn't mean that you always get along swimmingly uh, with your, your brother or sister in Christ. It's not like if you have a disagreement with someone whom uh, you worship with uh, that you, you therefore don't know God. But it does say that if, if you let those disagreements fester and, and it boils over into hatred then this might be a sign that you're not allowing uh, God's uh, power to continually be at work in you, that you're turning your back on him, that you're allowing the darkness to grow. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness. It's a serious thing when uh, you really can't stand another Christian and you really despise them and you actually want out, you're out to get them. And let me say, it's difficult when you end up in that sort of conflict. I should invite Ruth to give a, a come up and give a, a, 101 examples of the dangers of, of, of walking around in the darkness of hatred and conflict. But I've seen it, right? I've seen people... Uh, turn their back on their brothers and sisters in Christ because they uh, started off just disagreeing with them about something, but it, they've let it build into full-blown hatred. I've been a victim of this. I've turned up to meetings and had people walk out, out simply because I'm there. And there's nothing I can do, and it's, and, and it's terribly concerning to me for them. Let me warn you not to allow your disagreements to get that far. Deal with them, sort them out, do it with love, because without it you walk around in darkness. And of course, 
John then moves on in verses 12 to 14 to remind them that this is not you, who you are, these people he's writing to, and hopefully us here today. You do indeed love God. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him from the beginning. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you. That is not who you are. You are people who love God. I know this about you. I know that I'm telling you, I'm preaching to to the choir. You do indeed love God. And so... Verse 16, don't love the world. Don't love the world. Continue instead in your love for Jesus and not for the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world, verse 15. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lasts forever. You know, the world can put many shiny things in front of our eyes. And John describes some of them, doesn't he? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, things that are enticing. But John wants us to have an eternal perspective. Don't be distracted by these things. They are but dust. They will pass away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever though there may be many things that look good in this life much of it is part of the passing darkness and John wants us to instead focus on doing the will of God as people who love God we see next that uh, John moves on to uh, the issue of, of false teaching and antichrists Love for the world uh, can not only lead to being distracted by the wrong things, but in fact can lead us to have the wrong ideas, to false teaching, to teaching that ultimately denies Christ, teaching that is by very different de- definition anti-Jesus, anti-Christ. It's a phrase that can be used a lot, isn't it? The anti-Christ. And perhaps you've uh, had a conversation or you've um, been on an online forum or something uh, where uh, people try and pick the Antichrist. Uh, and so maybe, it is, maybe it's uh, Scott Morrison or maybe it's Joe Biden or maybe it's Donald Trump or uh, maybe it's Adolf Hitler or uh, Julius Caesar or Rupert Murdoch or Mark Zuckerberg or... Whoever your uh, least favourite character of the day is, we try and figure out why the Bible might be describing this person as the Antichrist. But of course, John says, actually, it's those who go out, who walk away from the love of God, who don't do what he says, and who try and lead others astray as well. The Antichrist is anyone, anyone who denies Jesus, verse 22 and 23. And so John's encouragement is to remember that as Christians, as people who love 
Jesus, who know Jesus, who seek to do what he says, that we continue in that way and don't allow ourselves to be drawn away by fancy-sounding arguments or different types of things. You know, uh, I'm listening to a podcast at the moment uh, about the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church, which is probably uh, the sort of thing that uh, I only... I'm interested in, it may not be something you're interested in, but you may remember there was this guy called Mark Driscoll uh, who grew a massive church and then it all fell away. And this podcast is trying to explain uh, what happened. And uh, it's up to the point now where it's talking about the, the emerging church movement that was around kind of 10, 15 years ago. Well, probably more than that, I'm just underestimating how old I am. And... Uh, it's interesting because I can remember back in those days being very interested in a lot of, of what they were saying and they had some valid points but many of the people who were in that movement, I'm not going to name names and I'm not saying that Mark Driscoll's one of them, but many of the people who were in that movement do seem to, uh, now when I read some of the stuff they say, I think this, this has no uh, resemblance to, 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 to Christ at all. Where's the call to repentance of, from sin? Where's the call to submitting to the Lordship of Christ? We can get drawn to fancy and new-sounding arguments when what John's calling us to is to stay committed to the, the simple gospel truth and allow that to continue to shape and reform us. This is what John calls us to. You, verse 20, have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son and the Father, uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. Remain in Jesus. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, says John, verse 26. But as for you, the anointing you have received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. John's call is to stand firm in your anointing that comes through the uh, hearing of the gospel and responding in faith to it. All of us receive this anointing, this anointing of the Spirit uh, that points us to Christ and what he's done for us through uh, entering this world, dying on the cross, rising to new life. And whenever we start to get bored with that and we want to run off into other fancy-sounding arguments, the anointing, the Spirit ought to be at work in us going, going danger, danger, danger. In fact, uh, John wants us 
to, to have that the same sceptical attitude of uh, uh, what's going on here when you listen to me. Danger, danger, danger. Now, I hope, you don't ha- I hope that it doesn't happen too often, right? But it might happen. There's going to be times where you, you think, you know, that just was a, uh, it was a bit funny today. And I want you to kind of come and talk to me about that if, if you think something has happened because at the end of the day, my job as a preacher is to expound the word of God to you. And I only have authority in as much as I stay true to that. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know the truth. You know the truth of the gospel. You know what Jesus has done for you. And so that message that you heard five years ago, ten years ago, seventy years ago about how God loves you, about how he sent his one and only son to die for you, about how he's calling you to submit your life to his lordship and to do what he says. That simple gospel message, hold on to it. Stand firm in it. Resist the world. Resist falsehood. And seek God's anointing spirit to continually connect you to Christ and his commands and to continually powerfully shape you to be more like Jesus. Because this is how you know what it is to love God. It's been taught to you, remain in him and he will remain in you. And so let me encourage you today to remain in Christ, to love him and to do what he says because you are his children. Amen.